Listener Production. Okay, are you recording? Dudes, dudettes, welcome along to episode 157 of the Howie Games Part A, featuring a multi-sport superstar, Aaron Phillips. Cue the basketball highlight. Phillips working her way around and hitting the three. The Aussie scores. Now, cue the footy highlight. Bombing it long. How will it bounce? It's going to be Imagine being talented and hardworking enough to be a star in not one, but two sports. That's Erin Phillips. Now, I'd never met Erin prior to this conversation, so to set the scene for you, she bounced into the room. I mean bounced into the room. Full of energy, big grin on her face, bursting with positivity. She was pumped to be involved, which made it very, very easy for me. And I absolutely loved chatting with Erin because it was fun. It was just really fun. It was good. It was fun. We went way off topic at points, as you'll hear. So you search and try to find But you don't know where to go So many thoughts flood through your mind You're confused and want to know Mystery, what is to be So much more than meets the eye Listen to me, time is your key You will find out by and by What a life sport has given Erin from playing basketball all around the globe. Footy, as AFLW first launched, same-sex marriage, IVF, and the importance of just being a really good person. This episode is what the Howie Games strives to be about. Varied, thoughtful, motivational, positive, and fun. Erin in a nutshell. Well, the time has now come. Before we roll, the Howie Games is very excited to announce we've just signed... Clubs are ready and waiting in their selection rooms. The number one pick in the podcast mid-season draft. Round one, selection one. Joining the elite operators that are MJ and Das With the first pick in the 2022 mid-season draft. Is Tommy. Tommy. Welcome, Tommy boy. Welcome to the madness. Okay, let's roll with a lady who made my day and now hopefully yours, Erin Phillips, OAM. So when you search and then you find And know just where to go And thoughts that once used to cloud your mind You see clearly and now you know Mystery, what is to be Revealed in King Selassie I Come on children, try it with me We want to reach Mount Zion Well, this is a rare treat for the Howie Games. A lady that has dominated in a couple of sports. I'm extremely excited to see her in person for the first time. I feel like I know so much about her. I had to give her a hug when she walked in the door. Erin Phillips, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. It's a real honour to be here. I knew you were passionate and we'll talk about your move to Port Adelaide. I didn't expect you to walk in with your Port Adelaide (laughs) shirt on ready to go with the sponsors already. Look, I knew you were going to say something. Um, Yeah, I just kind of get around in this kit. (laughs) It's just a a typical weekday. I'm actually excited heading to the draft. Um, So I'm very excited I get to represent Port Adelaide and and welcome some new kids to the program, which is going to be fun. Absolutely. We'll start at the back end. So... 
You've just signed with the Port Adelaide Football Club. I was lucky enough to speak to your father on the radio three weeks ago and he spent the whole time talking about you, which touched me as a father and I understand daughters, but he was an eight-time premiership player at the football club. What did you say when you told him that you were joining his footy team? Yeah, it was pretty emotional. I reckon the whole build-up um, to deciding whether to stay at the Crows or go to Port Adelaide um, was very emotional. It was, it was emotional for him. And I think as a father, he was just more concerned about me and just wanting me to make a decision and, and feel comfortable with it and then um, get, on with, get on with life. And so when I, when I told him, um, obviously he was um, ecstatic. It was Port Adelaide. He would have been just as happy if it was the Crows, to be honest. And I think he was just so relieved because he knew how hard of a, a decision it was for me. And um, now that I was just had made a decision and could just focus forward and, yeah, he was absolutely pumped. And I think the Port Adelaide part will hit him probably closer to when we when we run out for that yeah, very first when game. when you run out and he sees his little girl out there for the yeah. first time in the colours yeah. that he bled for. It's such yeah. a good story. And running out of the exact same race as he ran out. As we look at Port Adelaide about to come out, Big Coochie Phillips, the captain of Port Adelaide, marvellous atmosphere here at the moment. They are a mean machine, Port Adelaide. And I would be hanging over the fence, you know, trying to get a high five from from him and his teammates. It's just, it's unbelievable to, to think I, I play for Port Adelaide, um, a team that I was pretty much born into. Um, it still blows my mind. It's, yeah, I have to keep looking down at the colours that I'm well, wearing. It's on. That's You're why wearing I keep them. wearing it, just because I'm not used to it. <laughs> uh, I need to say to you at the start, I, I read a lot about a guest before they come on, and, and I knew um, the basis of your story. I must say I didn't understand the full depth of your athletic achievement. I can only compare this. You'll laugh this. We were lucky enough to have Kelly Slater on this show. And he's won 11 world surfing titles. So normally, if you have a Mick Fanning on, you talk about his three titles, you get through all that in the podcast. With Kelly, I said to him, well, we can't go through every year. And it's a bit like that with you. I know you're still competing, mm. but do you ever look back and we'll, we'll get to what you've achieved, but it is a remarkable series of achievements, hence the fact you are OAM as well. <laughs> I should have introduced you as Aaron Phillips OAM. Do you ever look back and in disbelief at what you have achieved in two different sports, Aaron? You know, it's hard whilst you're still yeah. in it. It really is. And you hear a lot of athletes that say when they do retire, they reflect. And I feel like right now I've lived two separate lives. There, there's the basketball life and now footy. Um, so I, I reflect more on probably the basketball side of things because I'm away from it. And I only, a few weeks ago, was actually back in, in Indiana where we'd won uh, the 2012 WNBA title, having our 10-year reunion and just thinking to myself, holy crap, that like I was a part of a WNBA mm. title and, and with an incredible team. The clock and Indiana has won the WNBA championship for the very first time. After we won the 2012 championship with Indiana Fever, you get invited to the White House the following year. So the president who is in power, he honours that sporting team. He does <laughs> a lot of sporting teams, colleges, professional teams. So we were invited to the White House. We were there in 2013. 
We had to send our passports in months in advance to get background checks to make sure that we weren't crooks or had done anything crooks. bad. Well, a couple of my teammates were sus. so well, a bit dodgy. I don't, know, I don't know how they got in, but they did. <laughs> <laughs> they were good fun, but I'm like, wow, I didn't think you were getting this far. Anyway. Hello to the Fever if you're listening and you played in that team. They know who they are. Um, and so we, we all get dressed up. It's exciting. We get to go to the White House. We get onto a bus. We get on one. We get through one fence. That um, then we have to then transfer buses to go on to another bus, which is probably a bus that's been like wiped down, clean, and like bomb checked, checked and everything. Yep. Get onto that bus. We head into the grounds. Um, beautiful grounds. Like everything's pristine. The gardens are beautiful. Is the White House? Yep. Do you think Barrack mows the lawn? I probably wouldn't have thought he had time. So he's got he's but got I reckon, staff. But I reckon now he probably, okay. he'd probably look after his, okay. his Michelle might now. do a bit of yeah. weeding or something. Yeah. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Definitely on a Sunday. <laughs> um, and so we get to the side entrance of the White House. We get off the bus and it's like going through a security line at the airport, you know, the, the um, metal detector, the guy's there waving his wand around, checking you. And then you go up this ramp um, and... On the side of the ramp, it's hard to explain, but if you can imagine this huge industrial fan blowing against you as you walk up this ramp and the other side of the ramp is a wall with holes and I'm not sure what breed, but there were at least two dogs behind that wall sniffing oh, you. the air coming yeah, past. Sniffing you, uh, whatever the fan is blowing on, you know, on you, onto them. And then once you get through that, that rigmarole, you were inside the White House. We were greeted by in this in this lobby where it was the presidential band were like playing this nice music, welcoming us. The butlers, the you know, servants were there waiting for us. <laughs> um, then we were taken um, into these. There's basically free roam of three rooms that were, I think one was like one was red, one was green, one was a bit yellow. And they're all different kind of rooms where I suppose the president might like greet guests and and hop from room to room. And we were also allowed to go into the um, presidential dining suite, which was this, you know, the huge long table where all the, you know, powerful presidents. Yes, they all come and sit. And the painting of Abraham Lincoln that sits so iconically behind the middle chair where obviously, you know, Barack Obama would sit when he hosts and all the beautiful paintings around of all the past presidents. Jeez. It was just like, it was like literally stepping inside like a history, history lesson. Yeah, that's how it sounds. You know, and, it's a great description here. And you're looking outside the windows of the White House and you're looking out onto down, you know, through the gardens onto the street where you can see people standing behind the gate looking on the inside and you just think, oh, my God, we're in the White House. And the the, the gentleman that was taking us around waiting for Barack Obama to get there was telling us like the windows of the White House were so thick they were bomb-proof, like it was just like amazing. And so we all were waiting in this room next to the presentation room where we were going to all stand up and Barack Obama was going to honour us and there was press and and we we were allowed to take a guest. So obviously I took Tracy and she was there front row just like, oh, my God, you get to meet Barack Obama. This is like the best day of her life and she doesn't even, you know, get to meet him, but I did. And he walks into the room because we met him privately before we went out to be honoured. And the sheer, like, aura of this man when he walks into the room, just so 
elegantly and um, like almost like cool. And so you had presence. Oh, the presence was just, it just hit you. And I, and I always say like I can never describe this to give it what it deserves, but you are just, you just not, like you are so fixated on this guy you're like drawn to him. It's like a vortex. He has your attention huh. just straight away and he shook hands with all We stood in a line and he shook hands with us um, and you said hello and you give, you say your name and where you're from and I said, you know, hello, Mr. President. My name's Aaron Phillips. I'm from Australia. And he said, um, you know, g'day, mate. How You know, how you going? It wasn't yeah. a great Australian accent. <laughs> like he tried. We'll let it pass. But like... <laughs> I love, you know, he tried. <laughs> he tried. He tried. Um, and he he looks at you in the eye. He's just, everything about him is just incredible. And we got to, we we went out onto the, yeah, we went out and he honoured us. And I was like literally was the luckiest person in that room because I literally got to stand next to him in the photos uh, just by pure luck of where we were positioned on the um you know, standing up on the stage and, you know, you put your arm around him and like initially like my arms around the president of the United <laughs> States, like the most powerful man on the planet and you're like next to him and he he makes you feel like you're more important than him. Like he, he literally is so genuine and he, you know, it, it felt like when we were meeting him he just wanted to hang out and, and chat and because he loves sports, he has two daughters Female sports are so important to him and he, but then he had to go off and like save the world and stuff. Yeah. So, you know. So two things from there. Um, I reckon he'd be a great guest on the podcast. Did you get his number so I can whip him a text? Oh, we're, we're mates. Good. So we can hit him up after this. Second thing, <laughs> do you think he went back that night to dinner and said to Michelle, I got to put my arm around Aaron Phillips today. <laughs> like, wow, this girl um, is a multi-sport star. Yeah, I highly doubt it, but I could, <laughs> we can dream, right? Okay. Tell me about your split life between here in America. Um, we're managed by the same company and the great Cam Ruffhead. When I said, <laughs> listen, I'd love to speak with her, and he's like, well, she's in America, but she's coming back. <laughs> and did he say you won't be with the kids at the moment, so you have some time? Are your children here or not? No, they're not right. here. So tell, tell me about this yeah. and twins. Tell me about twins. Oh, well, I've got three kids. Yes. Um, twins that under, are... Three uh, under. Yes, the, the twins are Brooklyn and Blake, um, boy, girl. They're going to be six in November, so five and a half, and our youngest, Drew, he's almost three. So you had three pretty much under three. Yes, it was <laughs> chaos. <laughs> Whilst playing footy um, and, like, it, it's hectic, but for my wife, Tracy, and I, it's kind of our life and we're just used to it now, but... Um, Tracy, unfortunately, like so many other people during the pandemic, couldn't see family. And for her, it was over in the United States. So, where's she from in the States? She's from Dallas, Texas. And so, for two and a half years, couldn't get back. Um, And we finally went back only a couple of months ago. How was the reunite with grandparents and grandkids? And that would be. It It was just so emotional. It was just incredible. And sad that the fact that you can't get those years back, you know, and to spend time together. But I think it put it a lot into perspective. It gave us, you know, great awareness now how to not ever waste time and, and to make those the, that time mm. so so valuable and, and to cherish every every moment you get to spend with family. And just to see Tracy around her family, to see um, like her dad had 
hadn't seen our youngest since he was three months old, you know, just those it's heartbreaking, things. heartbreaking, that stuff, isn't it? It is heartbreaking. And so um, they're over there for another good five weeks before they fly back. And, you know, whilst it's really hard and I miss them every single minute, I'm just so grateful that she gets to spend and they get to spend time with family because it is hard anytime you have fam you know you're married to someone that lives overseas or has family overseas that's that's a massive challenge point for us is trying to balance the life between two countries. I find when I go to America every country I'm lucky enough to travel to there's something about it that I'm like well I love this. So for me I love the cereal aisle of American supermarkets because <laughs> like it's mind blowing. Are you a lucky charms fan? I, I'm anything. Anything <laughs> I can get my hands on you come back with sugar overload over there. What is it for your kids? that they embrace in America that they don't have here. I cannot get uh, out of the cereal aisle. The cereal aisle. I love the cereal aisle. aisle. You know, actually the first time they had Lucky Charms was when we went back this time. And, you know, with cereal boxes, they yep. come in like family sizes and then another size. Yes. <laughs> and we polished um, one box of Lucky Charms within three days. And I said, okay, no more Lucky Charms. This is sugar overload. Lucky Charms, heart stars and horseshoes, clovers and blue moons, hourglasses, rainbows and tasty red balloons. Um, you know, I think for them it's... Um, they don't quite grasp the concept of being in a whole nother country. I think just the plane ride over of the fun of being on an aeroplane and, you know, they, they get to sleep, we don't, you know, um, on that 17-hour flight. That's a long 17 hours with three little ones, but up in yeah. first class, so it's okay. Oh, no, no, 87J. <laughs> so you turn right, not left. Yeah, I, gotta, I feel you. I've got to walk 100 metres on the plane before I get to our seats. Please put us right in the back. Um, and so... They just, um, I think it's just um, for them. I, I don't even know if sometimes they know that they're in another mm. country. Um, but are, they picking they do, up, are they picking up words and accents and that um, type of thing? A few, look, it was kind of funny because um, when, because they were born over in the States, so all my, all of our kids were born in Dallas, Texas, and um they fell into watching Peppa Pig. So one of them started talking a bit British, <laughs> which really, really complicated <laughs> Australian, American, British accent all in one. Um, but uh, I think they like, they just, they're very lucky. Obviously we've got um, two wonderful supporting families in, in two different countries. They've got the dual passports. So you never know one day down the track, they might utilize it a bit more and, and, and see more of America and, um, although it's a it's a bit of a different country yeah. um, this day There's and some age. Difficult times over mm. there at the moment, have they? As yep. a lot of places are at the moment. I, when I was reading about you, Aaron, and it really hit me between the eyes. And um, I, this is not a political podcast mm -hmm. at all, so answer this as you will. But that you got married, but you had to get married in America mm. because at that stage you couldn't get married in Australia, and that just sat in my stomach. I was like. You had the option of getting married in America. A lot of people wouldn't have had that option. Mm. Um, it seems, thankfully that's been a change now, but it seems remarkable that five, how long ago did you get married? Uh, eight years ago. Eight years. So this year. Eight years ago that mm. you couldn't marry the lady you loved in your home country. There's something inherently wrong about that, mm. I reckon. Uh, <laughs> I saw you speak about it. I don't know you weren't a – it's not like you were – you weren't an enormous advocate about it, but reading and watching 
when you were asked about it, you spoke about it openly was mm. my interpretation of what transpired with you. Would that be fair? Yeah, definitely. I think Tracy and I are still quite private people, yep. um, but we're also very open. So if you ask us a question, um, we've been asked about our, our marriage, you know, what we went through, our IVF process, what we went through. Um, and so we're more more than happy to talk about it. I think we just haven't been the ones that have, you know, been at the, on at the, the front, front foot, I Absolutely. suppose. Yeah. And yeah. I feel like because we just kind of felt like we were just uh, like everybody else, just a married couple with, with kids and um, didn't feel like we were any different than a heterosexual couple. So, well, well, no different, except in Australia, you couldn't get married. Well, yeah. Which, yeah. as I said, it comes back to what I was saying. I, it, it, that's just not right mm. from where I sit. And it wasn't actually um, too much longer before that where we actually even couldn't get married in the United States and, and luckily for Barack Obama who changed that and allowed us to finally get married and it made so much of our life easier because we were going down the IVF process together and we were facing a really hard challenge because if we were to have kids uh, and Tracy gave birth to our kids, yep. I would then have to legally then file for adoption of my kids as well to become a legal guardian because it wasn't recognised. I couldn't be I couldn't be on the birth certificate. Why is that? Because I because we weren't recognised as a couple, so I would have to. Um, really. I would have to file. Yep. To adopt. In the states. The kids in the states. So that's was, just not right. And that's that's a lengthy that's a lengthy costly process that. Um, friends of ours have had to go through. It's emotional because you feel like these are our kids. Like, well, you know, this they're my kids. Like, why should I have yeah. to adopt them? So it made life so much easier for us. It, it you know, solidified our relationship. It, I just, we just felt like we were finally treated as, as a normal couple like everybody else and for so many millions of couples out there and, you know, when I got back to Australia, I kind of, and it wasn't legal here, I kind of felt I forgot kind of how behind Australia was from America because I had been living obviously over there playing in the WNBA and, yeah, it was it was a real eye-opener to know, to, to think, gosh, we're, we're still not up to speed with this. Yeah, it's, um, well, thankfully it's been rectified. You can debate whether it took it too long, but anyway, mm. that's a political discussion way outside <laughs> our area of expertise. Oh, can I ask you a question? Um about IVF. Mm. So I've been uh, blessed that uh, I've had a couple of kids. It hasn't been a consideration, but I, I, I know friends that have had children through IVF. High proportion of twins. Yes. So, which you were lucky enough to get. Yeah. So it's, it works a little bit different. I know in, in su- it's state by state here in, in Australia where you can actually you know, put two embryos in and... So does that increase your Yeah, you know, you're playing the odds, really, okay. you know, and for the amount of money that you do spend on IVF, you really do... Well, how much, is it, how oh, much does it cost a, gosh. roughly a, a, a go? There's my ignorance. So I'm saying a go. That, it's kind of hard to break down because it's literally to... Basically, Tracy had to cool harvest all these eggs, and you want to get as many as you can. And then, obviously, you have a donor, and then you want to get as many embryos after you know the the sperm and eggs meet. And then, so that's that's where the the money 
that's the process where it comes into. Once you have the embryos, it's kind of then, right? you know, you, you just try and, and we tried, like I said, two embryos just to have a, a better chance. We spent a better part of about two years trying to get pregnant just through uh, IUI, which is um, not quite IVF, um, a little bit more of a natural away, but that wasn't working and that was probably set us back anywhere from twelve to $15,000. Hmm. And so then basically it was start again. It was start again with uh, IVF and I reckon that's probably somewhere between fifteen and twenty grand, and that's that's probably cheap to a lot of people. We were the lucky ones that it actually worked the yep. first go. Um, we put in two embryos. Um, I actually had to come back uh, to Australia to do an Opals camp, and Tracy was in the doctor's office having her um, ultrasound and. The doctor said, and I was actually on Skype. One of the nurses was holding up the phone so I could be a part of the <laughs> <laughs> the process. And the doctor said, "Oh, both babies look great." Ooh. And I, at three o'clock in the morning from Australia, <laughs> woke up really, <laughs> really quickly when the doctor said both babies um, look good. Because then I was like, um, "Excuse me, I think." I don't know if my Skype was clear or if I heard you correctly, but did you just say two babies? And yeah, we were having twins, which my sister, my older sister, I have um, two sisters. My older sister has twins and I know what her life was like and the and the work and all I could think about was her when I when I was to tell her about how much laughter she was going to have both for me. Both my sisters had twins <laughs> it and is, I laughed at them both. Oh, gosh. <laughs> it is work. I mean, we wouldn't change anything, but my gosh, it's work. I spoke to Yana Pittman about um, the donor situation. I hope I'm not asking you questions. No. That, that, so the donor situation. So do you have a discussion with your partner about what type of donor you're after? Like, you know, I want a five foot two bloke and I want a six foot nine bloke or I want a bloke with blonde hair. Does it get that specific or how do you, or do you just take what you get as my son would say and don't get upset? Well, you just, you know, you you try to get Liam Hemsworth, don't you? (laughs) Or Chris. Okay. Or any of them. So basically Hemsworth (laughs) is okay. Okay. It's still a reasonably narrow field, I feel. Like honestly, it it is a big, it is a big process trying to pick the donor. It's a massive, like it's a massive decision when you think about it. But um, So how much detail? Is there a form where you can? Oh my gosh, it's 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 so detailed. It's like car shopping online, but on steroids because <laughs> wow. you literally like. I'm not saying you pick. You know, you literally pick. Um, you can pick hair color, eye color, height, weight, um, it, and the background checks on on all their donors. And obviously, different um, banks huh. are, are different, but ours had. It was so thorough. It's almost like you you know the donor, who they are, you just can't see them. Wow. They supply a baby photo and an adult photo um, and obviously the donors have options whether they want to supply these photos. You can hear them talk in interviews. Oh, you hear them? You, yeah. So, so you get a real feel for you them. You really do hmm. and you just don't know them. And so we literally without looking at any photos, Tracy and I, we compiled our own list because literally there's so many, so many donors. We compiled a list of our top 10 and then we combined our list to see if any matched. And I think we we were able to get down to three 
that we had similar interests in and that's when then we started doing the um, more real in-depth um, research. I mean, they had um, health checks on your grandparents, aunts and uncles, everything. Like it's really, really detailed. Hmm. And um, then we opted to um, look at the photos and just to get a feel of, you know, who who might just we might naturally gravitate towards. And then you've also got to go on a waiting list as well. So not only do you have to pick, then it's almost like, well, are they even available? So, And if you go on the big guns at the top, if you go on well, you the, the Hemsworth if you're taller, types. It's more expensive. Is it? Like the pedigree, yeah. It so costs more if you're it, taller. Well, that we noticed like if, wow. if you're like, and if you've got a very good education, if you're tall, yeah, you might. Your, yeah, your stuff right. might be worth more. So you're in more demand. <laughs> yes. And obviously you're both professional athletes. Did you still do you, can you look at how athletic the person may or may not be? Like you've got the Yeah, you can you can um like they generally have their interests, whether they played sports. A lot of these donors we found were medical students or um uh, college students that needed another way to pay for okay. college. So but, uh, you know, a lot of them, our donor, he had interest in sports and obviously that's something we were, you know, we gravitated towards. Yep. But more more so when you're trying to pick a donor, it's like 99% of it is around the background of their health and were they ever a smoker, their parents, just like, like that kind of huh. stuff. And it literally, once we at least got down to three... It was just a massive chunk of time going through all these different donors. It was, yeah, quite just, yeah, it blows, blows your mind. Oh, I didn't, I, I must admit, I didn't know it was that in-depth. Yeah. I didn't know the tall mice could charge more. <laughs> <laughs> How tall are you? Well, I'm nearly 6'2", so I wonder what I'm worth. Yes, you'd be worth a bit. Yeah, but I'm getting on, I think. I'm on the way down. I'm on the other and slippery slope. Yeah, I see. And you're Australian? Yeah, oh. I'm Australian. I'm decent education, never smoked. The American market, you'd be in demand. There you go. Maybe there's a little side hustle. <laughs> <laughs> Help pay the mortgage down. <laughs> short break from Aaron for a moment. First time I've actually done this live as to what's coming up next week because we've just recorded an episode with this man. His name is Mason Cox. He is a man with an incredible story to tell. He's travelled from the United States of America. He thought AFL was... Arena Football League. Arena Football League. <laughs> indoor NFL. Which is indoor NFL. He is in the room with me now. His full episode will be out next week. It is one I could not recommend more highly. But this is a little sneak peek. In fact, you won't hear this on the podcast. He was just telling me. He comes to Australia. He's got no idea what AFL is and does a few tryouts. The next morning with your brother who is representing to you as manager, you go downstairs to the 7-Eleven, big man. What happens then? Uh, we were told that morning we're on the back page of the Herald Sun. <laughs> and this is a guy who's never heard of Melbourne, never been to Australia, didn't know anything about it. And we rock up and the, the the two bellhop guys go, you're on the back of the Herald Sun. So my brother and I go, you got to be kidding me. We're on the back page of a newspaper half a world away. No one's going to believe this. We have to go get it. So we go to the newspaper stand, wherever it is, at 7-Eleven. We bought, I think, about 30 newspapers. <laughs> and we take out the last two pages and we stuff them in our, stuff them in our, uh, our, our bag to go home with. And uh, that was probably the first moment we, uh, we just kind of came to this realisation of how big we might be in the AFL. <laughs> This is why you need to listen to his episode. The full episode with the player profile will be out next week. His name is Mason Cox. I don't care whether you've got any interest in AFL or the Arena Football League. This is an episode you need to listen to. Alrighty, let's get back to Aaron.
Tell me, you mentioned at the start, what are your memories of watching your dad play footy? What's the day involved? Like yeah. what are you wearing? Who are you going with? Are you getting a pie at half time? Are those memories vivid for you? They are and I have been able to relive them whilst being at training down at Alberton quite a bit and it's it's down at Alberton Oval. It's a packed crowd. There's people standing up with a beer in their hand, a pie or a pasty and, you know, the real community footy. It's just chockers. Um, and I'm, all, I'm definitely in black and white. I'm in uh, my Guernsey. And, um, with I'm, your dad's number on the back? My dad's number on the back. I'm hanging over the race because they come out of the race and, you know, they're just like to me like just warriors coming out of the race and getting to play footy and, I'm hanging over there high-fiving dad or just, you know, he gives me a high-five or a thumbs up and getting all high-fives from the players and, yeah, just any time that it was a quarter break or a half-time, I had my footy under my arm, it was over the fence and it was my time to to kick the ball. Like, you know, <laughs> this is my opportunity and I would, um, as soon as that, like I said, as soon as that siren would go, I'm over the fence, I'm kicking until basically the umpire almost throws up the ball and I have to get off. But um, I'm running out getting grippo off of the trainers, you know. To <laughs> <laughs> the grippo. <laughs> yeah, my hands are just dirty and filthy because, you know, it's it's wintry and muddy and um, I'd be trying to get into um, John Cale's huddles just so I could hear a swear word famous or get a... Coach. Very, famous very coach. Very, famous. And so you, were, you wanted to get right in amongst oh, yeah. them. And it was like I was getting my... Rev up speech too, you know. What For did your I need? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I literally was a, I was obsessed, and I just loved it. Like Saturday game days were just fun, and you know, to to be able to be a part of it, to sit up in the great Foss Williams, um, you know, stadium down at Alberton, and you know, sit in our sleeping bags, and Mum would bring hot chocolate and stuff, and we just watched Dad play, and it was just great times, and. Once all the crowd was gone and the game was over and it'd be out, you know, either kicking the footy or running around the, you know, outskirts kicking cans around, you know. Um, but it were good times and something that my sisters and I look back being very privileged to grow yes. up in a football club like that and having a dad who, although had three girls, made us, you know, and wa- you know, wanted us to be a part of a club and a club that embraced us and, and embraced family, which was And did you fantastic. see any of the premierships? Oh, yeah. Right. So how many of the eight do you reckon you saw? Well, gosh. There's not many blokes can kick around and say I I think he won, I want to say maybe five after I was born. Right. And it was the 90, 90, 90 or 91 grand final where it was at the old footy park um, down oh, at West a Lake. old cold it was, that yeah. was. That was a West horrible Lakes. place to be on the boundary, yeah. footy park. Yeah. Oh, no. And they just won and... I was hanging over the fence as normal because actually my my mum's mum and her her friends, they actually would sleep outside of Footy Park right at the gates so that they could get the, the first two rows where the race comes out, where the boys come out, where dad would run out and so that they could, you know, put the rugs down. Sleep overnight. Yeah, sleep there overnight <laughs> in the freezing cold. They'd, you know, take it in turns. They'd just whip over to the McDonald's across the road for their brekkie for an English muffin and a hash brown. <laughs> and then they'd come back and, you know, they were literally there from the crack of dawn uh, when the gates opened and we would sit there first to row. So I was hanging over the fence and I know after that grand final 
that either dad was coming to get me or I was just going to jump over the fence anyway and run out there because like I felt like you know I'd won as well it was the, one of the best days <laughs> and dad took me uh, around I did a lap of lap of honor uh, with the team and and there's photos holding up the premiership cup and yeah and then after that every year um, I know the following year he brought me out, my two sisters and my my cousin Kim at the time. We we're all doing laps of uh, laps of honour with the team. It was just what it was wonderful amazing. memories. Yeah, and I, and I I can still remember being doing that lap of honour. And uh, you must feel for players like Greg Phillips too. In the twilight of his career as captain, it's a big honour for him today. He's getting all his kids under the ground. He's got a lot of them too. He's got a bit of a family and. Uh, and like waving to the crowd, like <laughs> I've won the premiership. Yes. It's all about me. Like I'm, I was uh, in the team photo when they all jump in together. Dad's got me up on the shoulders, and you know I've got my fist in the air, like yeah. <laughs> I like, kicked three from the yeah. half pocket. <laughs> so, what was the pathway? And this is the gist of what we're talking to you about mm. eventually. But what was the pathway for a young girl in Adelaide playing footy? Was it with the boys? It was with the boys. I was uh, lucky enough to play for a club called West Lakes, which is now called Smosh West Lakes. And I was the only girl and only girl um, pretty much in the association. And I, as soon as the moment I went out to West Lakes, I never felt like I was a girl playing with the boys. I was made to feel like I was part of, part of the team. And um, I was just embraced and I felt I was in my comfort zone. I loved playing. I had um, guys in the team that were my close friends and I played right up until uh, the age of 13 at Westlakes and, you know, like so many other uh, girls that you hear that at the age of 13 is when you can't play with the guys anymore and and football was my, my passion, you know. If you had asked me when I was younger what I wanted to be, it was like dad and had the short haircut you know I didn't didn't don the mullet but I had a hair a short haircut and just that was my passion that's what I wanted to to do and at the age of 13 I knew it was coming because um, my parents had I suppose warned me that you know there's there's no league after this and so when it ended I kind of you know knew it was coming and had to find another Another passion, which so was basketball. On, on footy, before we get to basketball, mm. you mentioned John Cale on mm. my extensive notes. Mm. John Cale described you as good a 14-year-old footballer as he had ever seen. So he wasn't saying as good a 14-year-old girl as I've ever seen. He's saying as good as just, no, I know you're a modest person, mm. but just run me through how dominant you were as a footballer, as a junior. Like you won awards left, right and centre mm. for your football. Yeah, I was a good footballer. Um and I think just because I, I loved it so much, I, you know, whenever I could, I was out the front kicking the footy or at school it was kicking the footy. I was working on my skills and f- just from a young age I just wanted to master the craft of footy and it didn't feel like training because it was literally something I mm. loved doing. And I remember I think it was an under-11s game and I'd woke, woke Dad up early. I think our game was at 11am and I worked out up at seven and I had drawn a, a football oval and I wanted him to talk me through structures. And he's like, you're too young. You don't <laughs> even need to care about structures. And that's, that's, you know, how obsessed I kind of was <laughs> with the game. I just loved it. And if it was raining outside and I couldn't kick the footy, I was 
kicking a balloon around around the house, trying to take hangers on the back of mum's couch, getting in trouble. And yeah, I, I don't know. It was just for me, football felt natural. It just felt like it, like I said, it was my passion. I knew who I was when I was, was playing it and it was just, yeah, I loved it, every every part of it. So skipping way ahead now, mm. what does it mean to you now that girls your age at that stage can look up and there's a pathway and I can be Aaron Phillips, I don't have to go and play basketball, I can be Aaron Phillips and make a living and a better living as we're progressing, being like you're smiling now as I ask you the question. Well, it's incredible because it's it's literally – a dream come true and it's it's the most rewarding part of having played these last six seasons as a you know AFLW player is to be a part of something bigger than just the sport having paving the pathway for these young kids now that can come through and you know I'll you know I'll be retired by the time that comes a full-time profession for these um, women but to to have played a role in it uh, with like so many others have, it that means more than premierships. You know, it's, you know, for 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 parents who are like my parents that don't have to tell their daughters anymore that you're going to have to play another sport, mm. but they can say to them, no, if you want to play footy, you can. Like that's the dream. You know, I would have at the time would have given anything for someone to say that to me, but, you know, I'm just so grateful that it's here now. Can't I don't want to look back and think, oh, what if? because I'm really grateful how my life turned out and I wouldn't change it for the world. But, you know, even myself, I've got two sons and a daughter. And for me to be able to say to them, if you both, if you guys want to play footy, you can and not have to exclude my daughter, it means everything. It's a great answer. So you go to basketball. 2002, you debut for the Adelaide Lightning, age 17. You play there for six years. But what I want to talk to you about, you played 229 games in the WNBA. My numbers are good, mm. yeah. I've done the research here. I didn't even know that. How well, many? you played 229. <laughs> okay. All outstanding, by okay. the way. Here comes Aaron Phillips. Final seconds. Got it. And it'll count. Phillips with the steal. Up against Wiggins and puts it in. Great job by Aaron Phillips. Well, they give up the three to Aaron Phillips. He's hit a couple of those. Aaron Phillips to the left hand off the glass. Danger, danger. Two more for the Aussie. Quick outlet. Phillips, one-on-one with Simone Augustus, goes right by her. But in 2005, you get drafted to the Connecticut Sun. So you're, what are you, 20, mm-hmm. 21? Tell me about early life in America. I remember speaking to Lauren Jackson about this and she said she, she just had to be brutally physical or she knew mm. she wasn't going to get a game. Yep. You're a young girl from Australia. All of a sudden you're in Connecticut, which is what, a couple of hours out of New York, and you're a professional basketball mm. in theory. How was it? It was a massive eye-opener for me. When I first went to Connecticut, well, when I got drafted, I actually didn't even know where Connecticut was. I had to look at an atlas. And for kids listening to this podcast, an atlas (laughs) is a book with the world map on it. I tell my kids about the (laughs) Melways where you used to have to put it on your lap and they'd say, what, there's a book to tell you where to go. Couldn't you use your phone? No. So you're on the atlas. I'm on an atlas. It's a long way from Alberton at this point. It is a very, very long way. And I... I actually waited a year after I got drafted. It was the same year that I um, was invited to become an Opal and to tour with the Opals. So I waited a year because I I wanted to to be an Opal. That was the ultimate right yep. to play for your country. So I waited a year, 
and went uh, to the WNBA in 2006. And my my route from Adelaide to Connecticut was Adelaide, Sydney, LA, Chicago, Connecticut, which is Bradford Airport. And I got delayed in LA, got delayed in Chicago, missed a flight, and I didn't think I was going to get to Connecticut. And I remember sitting in the airport in Chicago, like in tears, not knowing where the hell I'm going. Yes. You know, there was no phones back then. It was pay phones. I didn't even have any cash. She <laughs> must be old. Yeah. I'm no mobile phones. You should get on, no Aaron Phillips. <laughs> Holy moly. Maybe I just didn't even know there were mobile phones. But um, I made my way after 40-something hours, finally get to Connecticut. The team picks me up in this Hummer. Like, <laughs> and I'd never seen a you Hummer. Get those you don't yeah, get those No, you do not. And... <laughs> Taken to training and met my team who were, you know, they're talking about the best athletes in basketball in the world yep. from around the world. And one of my teammates, Margot Didek, she was from Poland. She was seven foot two. And I just remember walking and going, this is the big league. Like, holy crap. I need to. And seven foot two. Seven foot two. Imagine what she'd get on the egg donations. <laughs> Mate, she'd yes. be a millionaire. <laughs> That's a good point. She'd be raking it in. It's a good point. <laughs> Sorry, go on. Um, so I literally was just, um, luckily I had an Australian teammate over there, Laura Summerton, and who helped me so much. And you're right, when Lauren Jackson and, and they, you know, they said you had to be thick skin, you had to go in there and be fearless because, you're trying to compete for, you know, to stay on this team. You can get traded at any point. It's brutal and you have to go in there and absolutely stand up for yourself and be, you know, if any, if they f- smelt fear, you would be exposed. So I went out there and just gave it my all and, you know, made a fair career out of it. You, so you're only the only player drafted that year, um, 34 games in your debut season, but you're the only player not to play college basketball so how did you even end up there like were they watching your Adelaide team in action or is it just word of mouth like it's an unusual pathway now it is it is a lot of the you know draftees now it's all through college and given the fact that I was a foreigner you know from America my coach who drafted me who was at the Connecticut Sun at the time he was doing a tour down to Australia to visit Laura Summerton who was my teammate was there and just happened to see me and he asked me if I was interested in playing in the WNBA when when he came to visit, and I was I was like, yeah, of course, but never in my wildest dreams did I ever think that I'd get drafted to you know play in the professional league in America. And so when it happened, I was just absolutely blown away. And just to tell you how old I am, I was listening to the draft on dial-up internet, which the the cable to the uh, to the computer was about twenty foot long. <laughs> what is that noise? We used to go. And it kept cutting out. You are so old. Right? <laughs> My eggs would be worth nothing. <laughs> Zero. <laughs> and you're not that tall. No. <laughs> Thank God for Tracy. She's six foot. Um, so it was it was just phenomenal. Like, and I had, I suppose, a lot of the girls that if you're with a national team, it's easy to be exposed to the WNBA Um purely because, you know, a lot of these WNBA coaches go to world championships yep. and, and um, you know, world games. So, 
yeah, it was it was an interesting pathway, one that I didn't think that I would get to. I didn't opt to go to college because I was with the national team and I felt like um, the opportunity to play for Australia was already there for me and that was, for me, was the ultimate. So on the Australia, we'll get, we'll get back to uh, the WNBA, but you were part of the team to win the first ever gold medal for Australia World Championship. I, I'm not sure people understand the significance mm. of that. was an experience like that so you've grown up wanting to play footy you can't play footy and all of a sudden you're a world champion that's an extraordinary achievement for an Australian sporting team I was so so lucky I mean I like Australia had never won a gold medal on any international stage at the time I had played at the WNBL level with um, Rachel Spawn Michelle Brogan against all these past Opals that were champions and in, in the most amazing Australian athletes and that was the gold medal was something that we could never reach. Like it was silver, we'd played Team USA and and lost so many times. And then, yeah, when I played, you know, when I was a part of the team in 2006 at Worlds and which was was my first, uh, sorry, it was my second tournament with the Opals after the Commonwealth Games, to win a gold medal was just like mind-blowing because I felt really spoiled. I felt like I felt like Rachel and all that deserved it and here I was as a rookie and I had won a, won a gold medal for the Opals and so we were just the ones that, you know, who were lucky enough to be a part of it. It was really, it was a massive tribute to the past Opals that have literally got us to this position yeah. and it was one of the most incredible tournaments playing in. We were in Sao Paulo, Brazil and... Big old, big old city. It big was city. when the crowd was massive. We actually, um, we were kind of, we had also a bit of luck on our side too because um, Russia was playing Team USA in the semi and actually knocked them out. And so we had to beat the home t- home country, Brazil, to, to play Russia in the gold medal game. It was nuts inside that stadium. There were drums going off. The stadium was <laughs> packed. There was no occupational health and safety in that stadium because it was just, it was above capacity and it was just deafening crowd. It was electric and it was a hard, hard win. I don't think we won by very much and then had the opportunity to play Russia for a gold medal and um, it was nice to stand up on the on the dais and, and see America you know, not the flag, the American flag <laughs> up in the middle for a change. It was amazing. And, and so how does a group of um, history makers celebrate a world championship gold medal in Sao Paulo and Brazil? Oh. Like, she'd be a fairly loose old evening, I would have thought. Oh, oh, this will have to be edited, um, to be honest. It <laughs> well, was... Darth is in the room and he's the one yeah, that does the editing. Darth, so help me out. Um, look, it was... It was an amazing night. We we celebrated hard. We were gold medal winners in the celebrations. Mm. Don't worry about that. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so you're better off court than on even. Yes. Wow. Um, we, we celebrated really, really well, but we were actually heading back to Australia the very next day. Ouch. And so there were some sore heads getting on that bus um, and we flew from Sao Paulo to... Uh, we into Santiago, I think. Chile. We, yeah, into yep. Chile. And we had a, a layover there for a couple of hours. Then our flight got cancelled for like 10 hours. Oh. So then we, we took advantage of the Qantas um, oh, you're in the lounge. the Qantas club. <laughs> Beautiful. So the party, <laughs> what is it? 
point two began right. in the conscious lounge. <laughs> right. <laughs> and um, yeah, so we uh, we we took advantage of all ten hours. That's it for Erin Phillips Part A. We're only warming up. Part B awaits. 